Welcome. This is the Book Society Podcast, the podcast where we talk about interesting books with interesting people. Today, I'm talking with Jesse Cameron Alec, who was once known as James Cameron, but that's a story for another time. But Jesse Cameron Alec, the lead dramaturg at the Public Theater in New York City, one of my best friends, the godfather of my children, and the book that he decided to choose was actually three books. It's called the Broken Earth Trilogy. The Broken Earth Trilogy. And I asked Jesse, as I ask everyone who comes on this podcast, I ask everyone to pick a book that's, you know, sort of manageably readable in a week, maybe three, 400 pages or, you know, a 10 hour audiobook. And so Jesse picked a trilogy that is probably a combined about a foot worth of reading, but that's how he is. And that's, I kind of knew he would do that. And I'm excited. So I had heard about this book on another podcast that N.K. Jemison was interviewed on. And that is how she first came to my attention was she was on, I think, the Ezra Klein podcast and did a workshop, like a mock workshop of what she does when she does workshops with kids about how to create a world. And she did that with Ezra. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, it's a great episode. Amazing. I want to take that workshop. <laughs> so that's how I learned about her. And then when you decided to read these books, I was really excited because I really wanted to read them. But you started reading N.K. Jemison a while ago. Well, not that long ago. Unlike you, I don't read that many novels. And that's only compared to you, because I know that you read quite a lot. And I think that you read more than I do. You know, in the normal pre-COVID world, I probably read a novel every couple months, you know? So over the course of a year, maybe I read six books. But this COVID pandemic time period has given me a lot more free time. So I read a lot of science fiction, but I just started reading N.K. Jemisin in the spring of 2020. So six books, but like how many plays do you think you've seen in the last 10 years? That's, of course, the reason why. I probably read about, I don't know, I'd say about six to eight plays a week. And then I probably see about six to eight plays a week also. So I ingest a large amount of stories, but they're usually in theatrical form, which is the reason why I don't get to read as many novels as I want to. Maybe the only good thing that came out of this pandemic was me reading all of N.K. Jemisin's books that she's ever written. <laughs> this would be a pretty awesome life's work if it was just this trilogy. But this is one of like several trilogies she's written, right? Absolutely. She loves the trilogy. Maybe it's an exaggeration to say that I read everything that she's written. I wrote the Broken Earth trilogy first. I started that in May 2020. And then I moved on and I read her new book, The City We Became, which is a love letter to New York City. It is beautiful, and romantic, and nostalgic as fuck. It's gorgeous. And then I read her book of short stories, How Long to Black Future Month, which is phenomenal. If it hasn't been optioned for a TV show yet, man, I need to get on that. Or someone needs to get on that. N.K. Jemison needs to get on it because it's a brilliant, brilliant book of short stories. It's kind of pointless to do a quick plot summary, but I think some of the salient things, and I don't know if these are spoilers, you should still read the book even after listening to this podcast. But if you listen to this podcast, the idea is that you don't need to read the book. We're going to talk about it in very abstract terms, but it's about a future Earth, maybe, some people have the power to control rocks. Origins, yeah. Origins. And because of their power, they are discriminated against in this bizarre logical twist that everybody seems to accept in this universe that I don't really understand. I have things to say about that. But go on with the plot summary, Lucas. This is fun. So it's a story of a woman who has several different names throughout the piece because she is running from town to town and she is an origin and she also, as an origin, is renamed once she gets her origin training. There's a thruple in here, which is 
pretty progressive and awesome. There's some stuff in space. It kind of goes all over the place. But if you're into audiobooks, this is a great audiobook in addition to being a great read. The performances of these audiobooks are just fantastic. And I'm pretty critical about audiobook performances. They're usually, I find, kind of boring. But this one is really, really good. But yeah, so Nasun is an origin. And the book starts with an earthquake that we later find out is caused by one of her compatriots and she inadvertently shields the town from the blast of the earthquake because i guess this is a power that origins have that they exercise subconsciously and i feel like maybe possibly there's some symbolism in this book nk jemison is an author of color and we have in this book really powerful people who are discriminated against for things about them that they cannot control what do you think jesse a point of clarification, always a point of clarification, Lucas. N.K. Jemison has said that this story does not take place on Earth. This is another planet. This is in tweets that I read. Someone commented, but it has a moon, you know? And N.K. Jemison responded, well, there's lots of planets with moons. This is an interesting point because Isaac Asimov, specifically in his Foundation series, there's characters who are looking for Earth, and a distinguishing mark of Earth, this planet that they're looking for, is that it's a certain size with a certain size moon. And Isaac Asimov says that that is a rare sort of thing, where N.K. Jemison says, well, there might be a lot of planets with moons. I just find that interesting. You know, I don't know who's right, and I don't know the science behind it, but N.K. Jemison says that this is not planet Earth. Well, we have more insight into how many galaxies there are than Asimov did. So that actually makes sense. But I think you're right. Probably the ratio of size between moon and earth is unique, I would imagine. That seems like it would be a fingerprint. But yeah, it doesn't describe the size of the moon. That's funny because I was sure that this took place on Earth. Lucas, when I read it, I was sure it took place on Earth also. It's interesting because like, you know, you read all three of the books and you go 20,000 years into the past. I think it's 40. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. A ridiculous amount of time into the past, you know, to this highly technological past. And then you watch how the Earth got broken, you know, and now you're in this future that is kind of like a mix of very, you know, high technology and very low technology things. But that wasn't your question. Your question was about oppression, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. which is my favorite topic. I think it's fascinating because this play is definitely about this play. Listen to me. <laughs> I was going to let it slide. <laughs> this trilogy of books is about oppression, you know, and it's about not only an oppressed group, but it's about a society that is dependent upon an oppressed group which is the society of 40,000 years ago. They had the exact same situation where they had an oppressed group that they were dependent upon and the society of present day in the book. This might seem like a contradiction, but I don't think it is. Because when you look at the history of slavery, for example, in, in the United States, the United States wouldn't exist without slavery. Very literally, you know, our economic system was based upon free labor. We needed it. So I think that N.K. Jemison, this is my own guess, is that she's drawing a comparison to a society that oppresses and puts its people into slavery and bondage, you know, and yet the entire society staying together depends upon those people and slavery and bondage. Yeah, well, I want to disagree with you because I think some of our best conversations are when we disagree, but I don't actually disagree with you on this particular point. Let's try again. Yeah, I know. Maybe we should read a different book, but I do think that you could certainly view it as a story of slavery, and it definitely is that, but it's also a bit of an environmental tale because in this society relies on origins and could not exist without them, but also keeps them essentially in a slave state. But the way that it got there in the original society that sort of destroyed the earth was exploiting the earth itself. I think I'm right that they actually created the origins. So it's also an environmental parable. 
No, you are totally right in terms of the way that these people on this planet, which they do call humans in the book, so not humans from Earth, I guess, but how these humans exploited the planet and exploited and exploited until the planet, Father Earth, I love the concept of Father Earth, this annoyed dad, you know, finally decides, you know what, human beings, I've had enough. I'm going to punish you forever. You're exactly right about it being an environmental parable. I read it completely differently. I thought that Father Earth was like, all right, I'm going to send you to your room. Because for Earth, 40,000 years is nothing. You know, it's enough for you to learn different ways. And it also seems like in the book, they didn't really learn anything in all that time. Nothing really changed. I found it actually really depressing because it's really a future dystopia book, but it's a dystopia so far in the future that it's just depressing. I assume that a thousand years after Mad Max, we have cities again and governments. But this is 40,000 years after Mad Max, nothing has changed because of the seasons, because the earth will not allow humanity to live peacefully for enough time to establish any kind of empire, I guess. Father Earth decides that they're going to keep on cracking down on human beings so they can't. They can't evolve in a significant sort of way. I mean, the stuff that we love, Jesse, you and I have read a lot of sci-fi books and talked about them quite a bit. And the things that we tend to love, I think, are a little bit more optimistic than this book was. The Star Trek universe, for example, what ends up winning the day is the human spirit. That's pretty much the narrative of the Star Trek universes. Yeah. So I had a conversation. Someone asked me the other day, because they know I'm very into science fiction. They were like, is there any science fiction that's actually utopian science fiction? And I was just like, there's actually very few science fiction that's utopian. And Star Trek would be the biggest thing that I could say envisions a future where we've evolved, we're better than we are now. And now we're just dealing with diplomatic sort of things. Star Wars isn't utopian. Star Wars is about a horrible past, actually, you know, but horrible sort of advanced society. It's interesting that you find these books pessimistic because, like, there's a lot of beautiful pessimism in it. There's a line in it. And this is goes to what you say about Father Earth and how 40,000 years is nothing. It says it wasn't the end of the world, of course, you know, the world will be just fine. And I love that sort of statement because like earth continues and stuff. But it's interesting, the pessimism, because I don't think it's a pessimistic book, but I think it's a very realistic book. You know, we get to a place at the very end of the book, sorry, spoiler alert, where this group of people have figured out a piece between them, but the season is still going to continue. The horrible season that started, it's still going to last for another hundred years. They're still in the world of hurt. A thousand years, right? It was something ridiculous like that. Yeah, the way that N.K. Jemison is so, so beautifully, she gives herself the sort of license to play with time, long distances of time, a thousand years. I mean, how horrible. Yeah. The time span of the book is at least 42,000 years long, depending on how you calculate it. Assuming that the civilization that we meet 42,000 years ago probably took several 10 millennia to evolve to where they were. Have you ever read the Dune books? Mm -hmm. All of those books, that takes place over, I think, a span of 10,000 years. Huh. So this is longer. That's, that's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> that's a drop in the bucket. So let me ask you, are Black women the best sci-fi writers? Oh my God. If you just took like two examples, you know, the two examples that I have spread all over my apartment are N.K. Jemison and Octavia Butler. In terms of world building, and in terms of building worlds that are specific and believable, I kind of think that Black yeah. women are the best science fiction writers. Yeah, Hands down, my two favorite. 
and K. Jemison after reading this trilogy and Octavia Butler. I mean, you, you're the one who gave me Dawn. I was staying at your house and you said, hey, read this on the plane. And you handed me Dawn. And yeah, I mean, it blew my mind. It's an amazing book. The way that Octavia Butler like explores genetics and breeding and history and parenthood is wild. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that the summer of 2020 was just terrible for me. <laughs> the pandemic, you know, and the, you know, sort of racial reckoning that started to happen in the summer was really, really difficult. And all the sort of politics at work made it even more difficult for me. And I grabbed two authors and they were N.K. Jemison and Octavia Butler, and I held them close to my chest. Those became my Bibles, you know, Parable of the Sower and, you know, the fifth season. Why do you think that is? Let's talk about that a little more. I'll talk about Octavia Butler first, you know, because Octavia Butler in Parable of the Sower gives a manual of how to get through. Her book of the living and parable of the sower has advice on how to deal with the world and especially how to deal with a changing world. <laughs> how to deal with a changing world, Lucas. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty relevant for summer of 2020, I think. Yeah. God, N.K. Jemison, she's also interested in how to deal with a changing world, you know, when the earth is constantly moving underneath your feet, you know, and the revolutions that can happen. But I have to say with N.K. Jemison and her world building, something that I found really beautiful and hopeful in it is how she wrote people of color into the world. Like she specified, like in the Broken Earth books, you know how there's like different kinds of people, like sans people and like other kinds of, I couldn't keep track what color people were, but she she went into detail about like, you know, their skin color, what their eyes look like, what their hair looked like in ways that didn't feel didactic, but just like the world that she was creating. And it's such a simple thing to describe a person, but most science fiction writers actually don't do that. The old school greats, you know, like Isaac Asimov, for example, only knew how to write cisgendered straight white men. <laughs> Their entire universes are populated by them. And I find it actually really inspiring and hopeful the way that N.K. Jemisin includes people of color in her universe. I don't think that people who aren't black think about hair a lot. Huh. Seriously, like, and this is something that I noticed when I moved to New York and we became friends and I started to have more friends who were black than I did when I was at home. And we basically lived together. You can almost see my old apartment over your shoulder there. I guess I just never noticed that like black people and non-black people have fundamentally different hair. You know, you know it, but it just never occurred to me that it requires different maintenance and that it's something that is thought about a lot. And you're right, that's not in a lot of stories. Also, I mean, like, you know, this is a slight diversion, but we'll go there. I'm doing this project for work. And so I'm rewatching Living Single, which by the way, was groundbreaking. It stands up. It stands the test of time. There's so few cringe moments where you're like, oh my God, that's really inappropriate. It's really quite smart. And the other day I watched this episode called A Hair Raising Episode. <laughs> and it was about black hair. And one of the characters, Kyle from next door, he has dreadlocks and he's trying to get a promotion at work. And uh, suddenly his hair becomes an issue because the people at work don't think that he's professional enough. And he has this question of what he should do with his hair. So that's the sitcom episode, but it's a very black question, you know, because like the way that black people have their hair is not only a statement of culture, but like also the greater sort of dominant culture has something to say about it. You know, we'll look at them and be like, hey, your hair, you know, why is it so kinky? I'm curious about it. Let me touch it. You know, or you shouldn't have the hair that you have at all. You should use chemicals to change your hair. So hair has become like such an interesting thing in Black culture in terms of how we relate to dominant culture. But it's also a statement of class, too. And traditionally in African-American culture and like how you're presenting class in terms of how your hair is or how your hair was born. I think that to allies, I guess, is what I would call myself. It's very subtle to us, but it's clearly very present. 
I don't think I've ever consciously thought about it in any of those terms, but you're right. I mean, it clearly represents all of that stuff. And of course, like Lucas, I think about it without even trying to think about it. It's not like I'm just like, let me think about hair. And that's, yeah, I know, totally. I, I'm bald, you know, and I haven't had hair since I was like 24. You got the Freddie Mercury mustache. Yeah, exactly. I've got hair on my lip. But like N.K. Jemison thinks about it too, you know, and she thinks about it without even trying to think about it, of course. That's you know? what I noticed is that there's just a lot of hair in this book. There's a lot of descriptions of people's hair. I think that is actually maybe the main descriptor of the people from different regions is how their hair is. That stood out to me. It stood out to me too. What did you think of the different modes of storytelling? Because in different chapters, the story was told in different ways. Yeah. So you may or may not know or remember about me. I have a big problem with the second person. Ooh. Oh, this I, must have been interesting. Though. Yeah. I let it slide <laughs> for several books and without spoiling anything, I think it actually paid off. And she did a good job. The reason that I have a problem with the second person, whenever I've taught writing or, you know, looked at other, you know, younger people's writing, when you go into the second person, you're immediately putting the reader on the defensive and you're making the reader say, no, I don't feel that way. No, I don't think like that. And unless you're Marcel Proust or unless you're George Eliot, it's really hard to pull off. I think that in sci-fi, you get some latitude because they know you're not talking about you specifically. They're talking about you in a different world. And N.K. Jemison has the chops to make it work. So I wasn't upset with it. So not the whole trilogy is in second person, but the first chapter is, and you know, a lot of it is in second person. And the first page I was like, oh, this is going to be painful. But then I was sucked in immediately. I would say in the first book, probably about a third of it is in second person. That's fascinating to hear that, Lucas, because like, I would agree with you. I think it's very hard to pull off telling people how they feel. I believe that she was trying to do an exercise in empathy. This isn't the character. This isn't Essen who this is happening to. This is you you find your son dead. You are having these emotions. And the way in which the experience of, without trying to spoil the entire book, the idea of telling someone their story in order for them to remember it, you know, I have to say it's a very spiritual sort of idea. I feel like I've seen that in like, you know, other sorts of science fiction that's high on spirituality of people talking to themselves. It feels like a very Tibetan book of the dead almost sort of like, you know, exercise of I'm going to tell you your entire life. Yeah, well, she also used that to mark time because the story is told from several different time periods where there are similar characters and the tenses are different. That's how you kind of know where you are. I don't think I've ever seen that done. It was really interesting. Each of these books won a Hugo Award. The Stone Sky won the Hugo and the Nebula. Oh, wow. I thought Stone Sky was the best one, personally. Of course it was. Well, did you find the trilogy's things happening? Did you like the first one, think the second one slumped and love the third one? That's often happens in trilogies. No, I think that happens in stories mostly. But I mean, Empire Strikes Back is definitely the best Star Wars movie. And episode eight, I think, is the best of the reboot Star Wars movies. I even think Attack of the Clones is the best of the prequels, if one of those can be better than the others. I'll let you judge that. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't think that the... Yeah, maybe. I mean, if I had read the second book and the third book, I would have thought they were both great. By the time you get to the third book of a trilogy, you've got a whole universe and you can really play with it. Lucas, you were telling me there was a scandal with her winning all these awards. I don't want to elevate it to the point of a scandal. It's just trolls is what there is. <laughs> and there are people who say, and you can find this on the comments of her acceptance speeches, that she won these awards because she's a black woman and this is the time of black women. You know, obviously, that's just nonsense. But it's amazing to me that in 2016, 17, 18, when this was happening, people still felt like, oh, okay, I can 
almost definitely without having read these books, tell you that they're not worthy of winning these awards. It's interesting, people's feelings about that. Because, oh, I don't know. I might agree that she won it because she's a Black woman. She won it because she's a brilliant Black woman. <laughs> I mean, like, oftentimes I will get into sort of situations. It's happened a lot over the last year, but it's happened throughout many years where people who aren't Black might say to me, oh, Jesse, I'm sure your career is going fine. You know, everyone wants a Black person, you know, or I'm sure you've gotten a lot of job offers. <laughs> Sorry no to laugh at you. Sorry, no, I mean, like, it is ridiculous <laughs> because people believe that there is a magic affirmative action lightsaber where I can cut through everything with affirmative action and life must be very, very easy for me. And so, like, I understand the prejudice of people who are just like, oh, she just got it because she was Black, you know? Thinking that because she's Black, doors just open, which is, I think it's ironic and interesting because, like, my experience has been the opposite. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you could also probably make a more convincing if you're Tucker Carlson or someone, you can make a more convincing case that someone might have won one award because they're black or that, you know, maybe they won because it was kind of a weak field that year and they wanted to give it to the black woman. But she won three in a row. Like if that isn't the ultimate flex, I don't know what is. I mean, she beat out every other novel that year, not once, not twice, three times in a row. Girl, be easy on them. <laughs> don't yeah, also, them. these are not books about race. If I didn't know N.K. Jemison was black from having seen her on interviews, it never would have occurred to me what her race might be. She's just a fantastic writer. Well, the books are about race, aren't they, though, Lucas? They're not about skin color race, but they're about origins and humans race, you know? In any great science fiction, you'll have, like, different races and sort of people interacting. You know why I think that, like, she deserved to win all the awards on this? Is that, like, you know, I have a pretty decent knowledge of science fiction books and the greats and the classics, some of the new sort of greats. And I have to say, oftentimes, I feel like writers are good at character or they're good at world building. Character, language, dialogue, who these people are, world building, universe, rules, but they're not good at both. I keep on coming back to Asimov because I like Asimov. Man, was he bad at character. So bad. Yeah, that's what I meant when we were talking about the second person, is that, like, she really has the chops to pull this off. It's very clear that she could just kind of write anything. Like, she's a very good writer. That's not abundantly clear from every science fiction writer. You know, there are some science fiction writers who write, as you said, really compelling worlds, but eh, oh, so-so characters. Or some who write really compelling characters, but, you know, you get through the weird world building because you love the characters. And there are very few writers who can kind of do everything. Someone who's good at character, Ray Bradbury, right? I love Ray Bradbury. I think he writes psychology and character so well. His worlds are kind of BS. They're kind of like, we're on Mars. There's air. Okay. I mean, like, you know, he just like plumps something because he doesn't really care about the world. He wants to go into the situation and the weirdness and the fear and the emotions that are happening. Um, Vonnegut, do you think it's a time period thing? Because those are both sort of from the same era. Well, and many of the sort of writers that are really good at world building are from even earlier. That's like Frank Herbert for me, you know, although Frank Herbert's okay at character, but I don't think he's great at character. That makes perfect sense to me, right? Because in the 1970s, we were really worried about what the world was going to be like, because it was changing so fast. Like there was a new kind of revolutionary technology every year in the 70s and 80s. So sci-fi, it makes sense, would want to speculate on what that was going to look like. And then today, I think the more present issue is what are we going to look like as a culture going forward? Because it's clear that we can't really predict what the future is going to be like technologically, but we are going to be the same. And what is that going to be like? That is really more of a study of character. I think that like, you know, in this day and age also, though, if you're making a story, a reader wants everything. 
you're going to have to make a three-dimensional thing that like lives in space and time and believable for me, you know, which kind of means that you need both. A wild thing in the Broken Earth trilogy that N.K. Jemisin got away with is that no one talks about space. No one. Until the third book. Still not that much. Not even that much. People on this planet are not concerned with outer space. Instead of looking up, they look down constantly. But she actually makes that make sense. Like there's a theory of anthropology that the only reason why human beings were interested in space and stuff is because of the moon. It gave us something to look up at. With the stars, we wouldn't have concerned ourselves with it because they're little dots. Well, there's there, there's also the sun. But the thing is, the moon is close. It's so close. It looks like, you know, even if you stare it up in the sky, it looks like you could walk on it, that it's something. And I think that like inspired people to be like, hey, what's out there in space? I am not an anthropologist, so this is complete bullshit. I mean, like, who knows? But I think it's interesting, N.K. Jemisin imagining a planet without the moon, and therefore no one looks at the stars. Huh. Yeah. You know, I actually didn't think that it was because there was no moon that no one looked up. I mean, I've also heard that it also has to do with our posture, that our ancestors weren't even really able to look up. Like it was a very unnatural gesture because they were on all fours, you know? Although, you know, then dogs can look up and howl at the moon. But I think we would have still wondered what the stars are without the moon. But you're right that the moon is very present and it's very strange and it doesn't behave like any other heavenly body. That's probably why a lot of people thought it was a god for a while. Totally. (laughs) Um, Listen, Lucas, I am full of Jesse's theories on human beings that aren't based in anything. (laughs) They are based in no previous knowledge. (laughs) We read a lot of nonfiction on this podcast. We're reading a couple of books that are kind of about human anthropology. I think I'm doing Sapiens with someone. That's a fantastic book about why we are how we are and also how we homo sapiens murdered every other upright walking monkey. You can live on this island for a while, but eventually we're going to build boats. We're going to come get you. One of the interesting things about Sapiens, though, is that it actually puts books like this in perspective because our evolution happened over a million years. And all of this from Africa to settling North America the second time was several million years. There is a specific gene that gives people a proclivity towards wandering away from their home. And if you map this gene, the people who live in the southernmost part of South America have the most expression of it. And it gets lower and lower the further you go up towards the Bering Strait. Is that a real thing? Yeah, it's real. And the idea is that we came over the Bering Strait during the Ice Age when it was walkable. And the people who had this gene were the ones who didn't settle. And they just kept going until they got to the end of the continent. Native Americans have it more than Native Canadians or Native Alaskans. So, yeah. I remember when we were talking about the civilization that was 40,000 years ago, they had an oppressed people that they had genetically made that were sort of created an oppressed people that were genetically made who had the power to speak to the earth. And they just did. And they killed all of those people and took their genes and turned them into these sort of slave kind of people. Yeah, I think I read that a little bit differently than you, maybe. Yeah, they had these people that were their enemies and they believed that they had these powers. And so they created a genetically altered race that did have those powers because they're mentioned so in passing. I didn't catch their names, but those people didn't actually have magical powers. Their enemies thought that they did. And so they created this race in their image, even though that was completely made up. Oh, that's interesting because I read it differently in terms of like that they were an enemy, but it felt like they weren't a big enemy. 
they were like an oppressed small population of native people who had these powers that they wiped out. They killed them all after they had won. They created people with these sort of powers. But you're right. It's only mentioned in the third book. And it's mentioned like three or four times, you know, because that was ancient history 40,000 years ago. But it's the story of us basically imagining the tools of our own destruction and then creating them and making them a reality. That's, yeah, that's something I think about a lot is that I end up talking about artificial intelligence all the time. And for reasons that, you know, whatever, I don't need to get into, but I end up talking about it all the time. And the thing I've noticed is that I said artificial intelligence. What are you thinking about right now? What's the image that comes to your head? I'm thinking about this Brazilian artist, Fernando Gregorio, who works with artificial intelligence and AI and body mapping and teaching computers how to dance with him. He's an experimental dancer and he dances with computers and stuff. That's not what I was expecting. I know, I know. I'm sorry. You know, I've been talking about artificial intelligence a lot and thinking about it a lot and how it interacts with the performing arts. But okay, like clear my mind, artificial intelligence, I'm thinking Skynet. Yeah, you're thinking of the Terminator. You can't have a conversation about it without that coming up. And I'm also ready and happy to admit that that's also what I think about when I think about artificial intelligence. But that's a story. That's a story that was just written by someone. And it has no basis in reality. It is the product of someone's imagination. It's interesting that these narratives have such sway over us and are able to dictate the course of our conversation to the point that they really do create reality over time. And that's, I think, part of what this book is about, that this threat didn't exist until the Sil Anagistines created it. It wasn't real. They imagined it, and then they made it real. And it ultimately destroyed the entire planet. And that is a situation, I think, as humans and as creatives that we find ourselves in a lot. I think that part of the parable is to be careful of your world models and be careful of your worldviews because they will actually shape the world. Huh. I think that's very interesting. It is good wisdom that the way that we think of the world will create it. And sometimes that's good in an interesting sort of way, the way in which science fiction influences our technology and how our technology advances, which you're right, it's just stories. It's just people making things up. Like when Asimov invented, you know, the three laws of robotics, he just made those up, you know? But now people actually, when they're thinking of like sort of robots and stuff, keep on thinking about it and keep on tying it into their own research. Yeah, 2001, A Space Odyssey is pretty much what Apple looked like in the 2000s. That look in the 1970s when that movie was made, technology didn't look like that. It was beige, computers were huge, and the production designer for that film imagined things that were smooth and had blinking red lights and were just beautiful looking. And that was just an idea that wasn't real, and Apple made that real. That's what technology looks like to us now. And it's hard to say if maybe that's the natural expression of human technology for us to make it sort of beautiful and interactive like that. But maybe not. Maybe that's just a direction that we've decided to go. And this is what we think reality is now. I think it's a direction that we've decided to go. And I think that if anything, it's exactly what you're saying. It's marking human beings and our ability to dream ourselves into the future, which I have to say, Lucas, that has become a major value of mine over the last year in the pandemic. Making plans right now and trying to build things and make things happen is a losing battle, you know? Plans love to fall apart three-fourths of the way through during this time period, but fantasies don't. Fantasies will get you through. And during this time period, I have like done a lot of sort of attempting to dream the theater world and what the theater is going to look like, trying to dream it into the future, hypothesize, fantasize about what it might be, the theater and my own personal life, you know? I've been trying to dream myself into the future and be like, what could I'd be doing. Because the more we dream about it, the more likely it is to actually occur. I think I just spewed some like power of yes 
Yeah, a little bit. There's a little bit of like, you know, mindset nonsense there, which, you know, we're about the same age and we're in artistic professions and I'm guessing our browsing histories look sort of similar. So maybe you have started getting ads for fake gurus, but I get ads on Instagram for these guru guys all the time who are trying to, you know, teach me how to be a coach, teach me how to sell, trade, you know, some imagined internet thing that will make you rich quick. And they always talk about mindset and it's all about mindset. It's, you know, if you don't believe it, it's not going to happen. And Allison and I talk about this too, because she's a little bit more hippie ish than most people. And she's experiencing a real boom in her career right now. And she talks about how she has the right mindset and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you have the right mindset. You also have 20 years of experience and a master's degree. So it's not just that you thought you could be a film composer. You've been working at it at the highest level for your entire adult life. And that's why you're succeeding. You're exactly right. I don't mean to come off too hippy-dippy. It's just a trap that I think during COVID, people can easily fall into that if you're not having success, it's because you have the wrong attitude. And that's bullshit. If you're experiencing success, it's not because you have the right attitude. It's because you have the right attitude and a lot of other things. And if you're having a rough time, it's not because you have the wrong attitude. It's because you have the wrong attitude and the world is fucked. Yeah, totally. But that's a little bit of a different thing, right? Than the dreaming of an entire nation or the dreaming of an entire people, which is what we're talking about in this book is that, you know, science fiction and narratives, not personal narratives, but narratives writ large have the power to subtly alter people's minds and shape the way that we view a topic. Like when we were talking about AI, that the Terminator is a part of that conversation, whether we like it or not. And that is something that really no one controls. You know, I don't think that James Cameron set out to do that when he made those films. He just set out to make a film that he thought was interesting. And I think N.K. Jemisin in this book is a little bit warning us about the power that propaganda and stories have to become real and alter the physical universe over time. I think that you have a more pessimistic read of this trilogy than I do. I, I told you I did. Yeah, I know you totally did. <laughs> I think she's more interested in possibilities than warning, than creating a story that's a negative allegory. And it's a reason why, like, you know, I sort of wrapped onto this book is the idea of imagining ourselves into the future and even imagining entirely different futures, entirely different planets, you know, with nuance is an act of optimism. It imagines a future where we are still there you know, where we actually exist. And that's the reason why science fiction is an optimistic art form, period. That even if you're writing a dystopic sort of future, it's a future. I mean, we could not be here. We could very well not be here in 50 years. The seas could rise, diseases could kill us, you know, it could all end. But science fiction says that we're there. We might be fighting alien lizards or we might have two heads or whatever, but we're there. The same reason that you find this optimistic, I find it to be pessimistic, is imagine if cows could write books, right? <laughs> if, you were, <laughs> if you were to take some kind of steppe animal, bovine family animal from 15,000 years ago and show it, hey, guess what? In the future, there's billions of cows. You guys are killing it. There's billions of you you do live in this kind of really fucked up genetically altered form of slavery and you're basically entirely used for food and none of you get to see the light of day ever. But you're killing it and you're there. And there's no future for you. I mean, the book does end optimistically, but just being alive is not a future. Yeah, but Lucas, story is about conflict. Story is about people fighting things, you know? So these cows who write the story about like, you know, being in the future, the cow would never write the story about like, oh, you know, in a hundred years, there's billions of you, but you're all in bondage and stuff. Cause that's not a story. That's a monstrous vision, you know? The story is 
And then one cow came who decided he wasn't going to give their milk for free or whatever, you know? And then the cow revolution starts and stuff. And that's how it is with every dystopia. The story is the story of the resistance, the story of the struggle. Even if the struggle ends in failure and the resistance ends, you know, with going back to bondage, it is the story of struggle where the sort of optimism and the inspirational comes from. You're inspired by a story that starts in bondage and ends in bondage? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. Seriously, I believe that I would be. I mean, like, can we think of a story that's like that? I bet we could. Well, this is kind of like that. The end of the book is, well, the central conflict of the book, which is that the Earth has basically been destroyed for a thousand years, has not been resolved. Yes, it has. Not really. I mean, we all feel better about it and we think we have a way forward, but there's still going to be a thousand years to forget about what happened. Okay, number one, I forget if it's a thousand years or a hundred years. But either way, you know, at the end of the book, peace has been struck with Father Earth. And also, you know, the central hub of the civilization has fallen into the volcano. It's gone. And it's like million residents are gone also. And the new central city is a mixed community where origins and humans live in a co-ruling sort of situation. So this insinuates to me that that is the new beginning of the sort of culture. And that like what has been broken is 40,000 years of a pattern, which everyone hates origins and oppresses them because we need them, but humans are dominant and we continue this sort of pattern. I think that this book is about breaking the pattern. And so I think it actually does open up the doors to a new future. I think it's optimistic. It's the pattern of slavery, I think, because in the book, the humans enslave Father Earth. But by enslaving Father Earth, they actually enslave themselves. But see, that narrative of slavery, I wish that that's how it worked, but it's not. Because what actually happens is by enslaving other people, generally you enrich yourself. I'm not advocating that anybody does that, but that is the reason that it is done, is that the oppressors don't really ever feel this backlash. That's what, in terms of the enslavement of the origins in the book, the humans do. They get rich, they're able to build cities and become rich and powerful and all of that sort of thing. It's interesting because like 40,000 years ago, Father Earth was enslaved. Then he threw off the shackles of his oppression and this was like, I'm going to retaliate against you. And in order to stop Father Earth from retaliating, human beings had to enslave the origins and they needed to create a new sort of thing. And this is the story of how peace is struck with Father Earth and how the origins are freed from bondage. And those two things are the same thing. The solution turns out to be. So the people in this book who are not origins and are not Father Earth have learned basically nothing. They enslaved one thing and bit back. They enslaved someone else and now they're all fine. Also, Lucas, it's worth saying that I'm sure you've heard the sort of trope, the idea that Black people, and especially Black women, have to fix everything. In this society, it's always going to be a Black woman who has to like put in the labor, fix things because no one else is going to do it. In this book, you bring up an interesting point. The origins are the people who fix the problem with Father Earth. The origins are not the people who started the problem, but they are the ones who fixed it because they had to. That is an interesting sort of theme. Yeah, even from their position of bondage, it was the only way to ensure their own survival. See, this is why I find this book to be depressing. <laughs> it does say, though, that the future is won by sacrifice. When people ask me, oh, Jesse, putting in work to help racism end, to help white people be better and not white supremacist sort of people, it's just like, you know, why put in the work? It's not your job, you know? And it's true. You know what? It's not my job to make anyone better. And I would say that racism is a white person problem. It's a white culture problem. But, and so it's not your job. But do you want the world to be a better place? Well, roll up your sleeves then, honey, because it takes a lot of work on shit that wasn't your fault to make the world a better place. 
And that's a bummer. <laughs> but I do believe it leads to good things. That is a great place to end this discussion. <laughs> um, thank you, Jesse, for coming on. Thank you for telling us your thoughts. Thank you for reading a thousand pages of a book with me. And I look forward to doing it again with you real soon. It's a pleasure, Lucas. Thank you.